Well, good morning, and the weather has improved again, so I'm back speaking to you from the garden where so many of uh, last year's messages were filmed. And I always think you can tell which month they were filmed in by looking at the beautiful rhododendron bush behind me. As you can see, it's uh, just beginning to blossom again in anticipation of a glorious May. And so I trust that the word I'm going to share with you today will bring enough heat and light to your heart to cause a blossoming of whatever word of God is sown in there. Now, to be honest, I don't know much about gardening. I think you know that. Uh, but I do love history. And so, you know, at school, it was one of my favorite subjects. And in our house, we always love watching history documentaries or dramas about a bygone age. Now, I grew up myself in a large house that had a little bit of history about it. It was nothing like a stately home, but because it was built in the 1900s, um, it did have in each room a button. And when you press that button, a bell rang down in the kitchen. Now, in the kitchen, there was a display board high up on the wall above the door, and there were nine little windows in it. So whoever was working in the kitchen could see which room had summoned them. So I guess this was all made in the time when people still have a manservant or a maidservant. Um, now, of course, when the children, when we were old enough to recognize that there was a button in the room that rang a bell and we were high enough to actually press it, we played havoc with mum and dad. We loved to sort of sneak into a room press the button and watch them go to the front door to find there was nobody there. <laughs> so it's not surprising they eventually got an electrician in to disconnect the buttons. You know, many years later, uh, that house was demolished. We sold it to a builder who put apartments there. And I'm always kicking myself that I never went back and rescued that little Edwardian bell display panel. It would have been such a great souvenir of that age and of that house, you know. Well, a couple of years ago, myself and Nicola, we were watching one of these historical dramas on television. And uh, it was actually the series Downton Abbey, which, uh, if you don't know, is really about uh, an aristocratic family, a very wealthy family living in a large stately home. And it contrasts their lives with the lives of the people who are serving them. Uh, so the contrast between the rich and the poor. And one night we were watching a scene where the wealthy family were coming in for some criticism um, from a young lady who objected to their lives, the lives of the upper class. Now, she didn't know them personally, this family, but she was speaking to somebody who did, who knew them very well, had worked for them and was part of that family. And she made this comment to him. She said, I don't like their type. Now, I always will remember the reply she got from the other character, because the moment he said it, I thought of Jesus. He simply said, I don't believe in types, I believe in people. You know, Jesus continually offended the religious leaders of his time because it was obvious from his behavior that he didn't believe in types. Uh, he just believed in people, each one unique and precious. Jesus just loved being with people. I think that is why perhaps even at the age of 12, his, uh, Mary and Joseph took a whole day to discover that he was missing. Do you remember that story in Luke 2? when they were leaving Jerusalem, and they'd gone a whole day's journey before they started looking for him. And I always think, why did they wait so long? Possibly because it wasn't unusual for him to be away chatting with people for hours and hours. And 20 years later, that was still who he was. Someone who was always to be found right in the middle of a party or family gathering, right up to the wee hours, just chatting with people. He loved being with people. So much so that his religious enemies, when they noticed this, that he was always in the middle of a meal or a family gathering or a party, they assumed that it must be because he's a glutton or a drunkard, and they spread that rumor about him. 
Now, why did they think that? Well, because being religious, they couldn't see the real reason. He loved people. And that's a sad thing, really, about being religious. It's like a veil that blinds you to the love of God. Religious folks, we just don't get it. God just loves people. He loves being with them, you know? And sometimes the more religious you are, we just have no idea that God isn't a God who uses people to achieve his great purposes and has to hold his nose to do it. You know, um, that's not what he's like. And if you think that's what he's like, you'll go around your whole life measuring yourself and measuring others by how much they have been used by God. Well, you know, <clears throat> if the God you worship is a God who primarily uses people to achieve his great purposes, the problem is you'll end up seeing little wrong yourself with using people to achieve yours. The New Testament doesn't say that Jesus chose his disciples primarily so that he could use them. Mark 3.14 tells us that he appointed 12 that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach. You see, what we do for him must come out of simply being with him. And I believe that in this hour, you know, if everything has happened over the last year, the primary challenge before the church right now is to recognize that so much of what we have been doing for him has not come from being with him. Instead, church has become what we're doing for him in order that one day we will be with him. You know, when I was growing up, all the images and pictures of Jesus in the sense that we had, not one of them showed the Lord or any of the saints laughing or even smiling. I mean, religion was a serious business and apparently God never laughed. And uh, I've thought since then that those images probably had a more profound effect on me than I realized. And perhaps I guess that's why down the centuries images like that were commissioned to put the fear of God into people. But the fact that every image I can remember of Jesus was never a happy one really would have influenced me a lot on what I thought or what I believed about our Father who art in heaven because Christ's face was supposed to be the disposition of God towards us, the exact image of the Father. So whether we know it or not, we all live by that inner picture we carry of our Father who art in heaven. And I think the picture that many of us grew up carrying inside of us was one where the look on his face was one of disappointment. I mean, he had to be disappointed with us, didn't he? Because all the time we're being told that we had to apologize to him. We had to plead for forgiveness all the time. So he must be disappointed. I think it's not hard to understand why some people who grew up in that environment walked away with the distinct impression that Jesus came to save us from the Father rather than to save us from sin and death. Now that's a serious problem because the picture we carry, the belief we carry about the Father in our hearts is the very foundation, the very root of the rest of our lives. You know, in Acts 9, we read that story about Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus to persecute believers. If you think for a moment about the picture of the Father that he was carrying in his heart as he set out to attack Christians, the God he believed in was not one who loved his enemies. Saul needed an encounter with Christ for that picture in his heart, that belief in his heart to change. And what a change that was. I mean, he went from hating Christians to loving them because the picture of the Father in his heart had changed. God's way of opening our eyes to the heart of the Father is still the same today. It's through an encounter with Jesus. And that's why Jesus said himself, no man comes to the Father but by me. He was simply saying, if you're believing in a Father who doesn't look like me, one who lays down his life for you, then you're not believing in the Father as he really is. You've not yet come to him. 
only your religious version of him. You know, I have great news this morning for atheists out there. It's quite likely that the version of God that you were presented with and couldn't believe in, Jesus doesn't believe in him either. The Father Jesus came to reveal is a friend of tax collectors and sinners and especially atheists. He loves you so much that he gave all he had to give for you. But it was never his idea that you should be required to believe in him without knowing him. I mean, how can you trust someone you don't know? If God expected you just to believe in him without knowing him, there'd be no call for the Holy Spirit, the one who is given that we might know the things which have been freely given to us by God. That's 1 Corinthians 2.12. If God expected you to just believe in him without knowing him, there would be no call for the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus himself said, when you see me, you've seen the Father. Do you remember him saying that to Philip in John 14 verse 9? So, so what do we see then about the Father when we look at Jesus? When we look at the way he was with people burned by religion or broken by rejection, we see him spending time with them, eating with them, listening to all their questions, responding to them in a way that convinces them that he is for them, not against them. And that is what the Holy Spirit has been doing in your life and mine for years, so gently, so patiently, because he doesn't do superficial. The Holy Spirit is not looking to chalk you up as a convert. He's looking to raise you up as a child of the King. But true love doesn't force its way on us. The Holy Spirit never removes our free will. He just comes to correct the false picture we carry of the Father. And for that, each of us need to see Jesus. We need to see him dying to be with us and hear in his words, the words of the Father. I have not come to condemn you, but to save you. The Holy Spirit wants us to see the Father as he really is. In other words, he wants us to know the Father. You know, when the New Testament speaks of believing in God, it's talking about more than an intellectual understanding, a head knowledge, because the Holy Spirit has now been given. It's talking about knowing him, knowing God for who he really is. You know, I mean, if I said to you, do you believe in the new president of the United States, Joe Biden? You would say, well, I believe he exists, but that's not believing and knowing, is it? I mean, if we stopped, let's say, Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus and asked him if he believed in God, he would have told you in no uncertain terms, of course I believe in God. In fact, he would have said his belief in God was zealous and passionate. That's why he was on his way to kill some Christians. You see, unfortunately, a zealous belief in God is the most dangerous type to have when your picture of him is wrong. I mean, it was people who zealously believed in God who crucified Jesus and then persecuted the church. They believed in God, but they didn't know him. I have a good friend who loves to say to people, do you believe in God? And when they usually answer yes, he'll then ask them a second question. Ah, but do you know him? You see, the greatest problem in this world at the moment isn't the lack of people believing in God. I think about two thirds of people in the world have asked say they believe in God. The problem is that multitudes are claiming to believe in him, but don't actually know him at all. And their own Christ-like behavior is only convincing the rest of the world that they don't want to know him either. Thank you very much. You see, even unbelievers instinctively know that what you're believing is the root of your behavior. So if your attitude to people is coldly legalistic, that you look on them and speak of them as a type rather than a unique person of infinite worth to the Father, then don't be surprised if that person is reluctant to believe in your God. And don't be surprised either that the Holy Spirit is even more reluctant to confirm your words. 
You see, the New Testament declares Jesus to be the exact representation of the Father's being. As Jesus said to Philip, don't you know me yet? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, look at Jesus. Just look at him and you'll see the Father openly accepting sinners, sharing his meal with them, which in those days mean to open your house and to come into someone's house and eat with them. And their house was tantamount to giving them your approval. Um, and we see right the way through the three years of Jesus' ministry, there is not one incident recorded where he refused to eat in the house of someone because of their lives. He didn't care if they were a tax collector or a Pharisee, a libertine or a legalist. Whether you're Simon the Pharisee or Matthew the tax collector, Jesus didn't see types. He saw uniquely and precious individual people destined to be conformed to the likeness of God through an encounter with him. Jesus didn't believe in types. He believed in people. Now, the more Christ-like we become, the less comfortable we should be in seeing or speaking about people as if they're a type. Maturity is growing into the heart of the Father, the mind of Christ on people. And that means growing up into seeing people as you would see your own children. No father or mother labels their children into types, but rather trumpets the uniqueness and infinite worth of each child. To see the spiritual immaturity of the church, we only have to look at how much we type and label each other, never mind the world. We've built our lives and ministries based on labels and types. Jesus didn't believe in types. He believed in unique persons, each of infinite worth, and his whole disposition and language towards each individual he met communicated to each of them their true significance to God. Let me say that in a different way. The Pharisees, you know, they labeled Jesus as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Just think about that. Sinners saw Jesus as their friend. They welcomed him into their gatherings. Do you know why? Because when Jesus spoke to you, he made you feel as if you're the most important person in the world. That's because to encounter Christ is to encounter the heart of the Father for his children, not the heart of a manager for workers. The infinite worth to the Father of each person, that's a recurring theme right the way through Jesus' ministry. We see him teaching that in the parables and we see him doing that in his actions where he repeatedly left the crowds to seek out the ones and twos in great need. He was always hanging around the villages rather than the big city. You know, Jesus said, the whole of heaven rejoices when one person comes to faith. Now stop for a second and think of the whole of heaven throwing a party over you. <laughs> or even better, don't stop for a second, stop for a lifetime. Just stop and wonder. You won't get your head around it. The thought of the whole of heaven valuing you so much. No wonder Jesus told his disciples to pray that the Father's will would be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Imagine what a world we would live in if everyone was valued in that way, if we all felt the same love for the stranger as we do for our own children. That is all revival is. People beginning to feel how God feels about people. But you know, heaven on earth starts with the church. The Holy Spirit is causing the church to repent, to have a metanoia, to stop thinking of themselves as so worthless and unworthy that they have to continually plead for forgiveness because as long as the church can't see their own worth to the Father, then they can't see the worth of the atheist or the stranger. And so instead of going and eating with them and loving the hell out of them, 
the church remains largely in her own buildings, praying that God would give those strangers a revelation of how worthless they are too, so that they could come and join us in our buildings as we cry out to God each week for forgiveness. Somehow that doesn't sound like heaven on earth. It sounds more like purgatory to me. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the love of the Father, a love that sees the stranger, even your enemy, as you would your own children. And such love always says the right thing and does the right thing. The actions of such love always surpass mere obedience to commands. Now let's talk about obedience for a while. Do you know that the less Christians are filled with the love of God, the Spirit of God, the more they emphasize obedience over love? Any ministry that emphasizes obedience over love will see little wrong in using guilt and shame to try and motivate Christians into obedience. Because to them, it doesn't matter what you use to get the result, as long as you get the result, obedience to God. But what if the result the Father wants for our lives is greater than obedience to God? What if he wanted more for us than for our lives to reveal our obedience? What if he wanted our lives to reveal his love? Now that's not an either or situation. Obedience is a fundamental aspect of the life of Christ. His obedience took him to death, through death, for us. But his love for us was not birthed out of his obedience. It was the other way around. The root, the source of his obedience was his love, which is his very nature. God's plan was not to send Christ to live an exemplary life, a life that we now have to try and imitate through obedience. He never had a plan to save the world through our obedience. His plan was to save the world through his love. Now that's worth saying again. God never had a plan to save the world through our obedience. His plan was to save the world through his love. His plan was to get his love, which if you remember is his very nature, into us by pouring into our hearts his very spirit, his very life, so that men and women filled with the love of God, filled with the Spirit of God, the life of God, can go out into this world and renew the world by bringing his presence, his love, his revelation of the infinite worth of each person in this world. I think that's what the prophet Ezekiel was saying when the Lord spoke through him and says, I'm going to take the old heart of stone out of you and give you a heart of flesh. He's going to change you from the inside out, not the outside in. You see, to God, Obedience was never something that we bring to God as if we have made it ourselves. The only obedience that pleases God is that which His love has birthed in our lives. Obedience that is of the Spirit, that is the gift of God. Obedience is not about willpower, but about a will empowered by the Spirit of God. It's not something we do ourselves. You see, Jesus told Nicodemus that flesh always gives birth to flesh. Obedience that is birthed out of a life filled with the fear of rejection will never lead to the character of Christ. Let me say that again. Without an encounter with Christ, the Father, as he really is, the love of God, any obedience that's simply birthed out of a life filled with the fear of rejection will never lead to the character of Christ. You know, the obedience of the religious in Jesus' day led only to pride and division, you know. That's why it's not good enough to try and scare people into the kingdom of God with the threat of hell. You know, any life birthed out of the fear of rejection will never lead to the character of Christ. It was that sort of obedience to God that persecuted and then crucified Christ. 
any religion that is blind to what Christ accomplished on the cross will always ask for your obedience in a way that implies that your obedience will bring you closer to God. Here's the gospel. Believer, in Christ, you cannot get closer to God. For through Christ, you died and your life now is hidden with Christ and God. What can get closer is your thinking, your mind, the renewal of your mind. You see, to believe in Christ is to be born from above. For every believer, heaven is not your finishing line. It is your starting place. Church, we were born from above to live from above. Now, born from above is the phrase Jesus used with Nicodemus when he told him that no one can see the kingdom of heaven unless they're born from above. The Apostle Paul said, apart, apart from the Holy Spirit, truths about the realm of the Spirit can only sound like foolishness. Well, how foolish does this sound to you? In Christ, heaven is not your finishing line. It is your birthplace. But the more Christians start to live from there, from above, from the union with Christ and God, the more the kingdom of heaven will be seen on the earth. You know, this union with Christ and God means that for a Christian, there is no longer your obedience in the sense that you've been left alone to produce obedience by yourself. Just as we saw last week, that you have not been left alone to produce repentance by yourself. You do not have that sort of life anymore, an alone-by-yourself life, a life that boasts that I have been obedient. Instead, every Christian should be able to say what the Apostle Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Now that's a gift. The obedience of the believer arises from their union with Christ their union with Christ in God, not from their separation from Him. Here's the good news of the gospel. Your obedience is not what makes you righteous, for God's plan was always to make men righteous, not through their obedience, but through His. Which is why the Apostle Paul boldly declared to the Romans that men are made righteous by the obedience of the one man. That's Romans 5 verse 19. And here's the news that sets you free from religion and from living your life in separation from God. That one man is not you, but Jesus Christ. We are made righteous by obedience, his. Now, your life and mine is a bit of an open book already to the world as to whose obedience we're relying on, we're operating in. Let your faith be rooted in his obedience, his life, and what will grow in your life is his righteousness, the righteousness of God. But. If you let religion, the spirit of the world, self-effort, the spirit that says you can do it for him, subtly move your faith off his obedience and onto your obedience, off his life for you and onto your life for him, then more and more what the world will see in your life is not God's righteousness, but self-righteousness and all the division and boasting and finger-pointing that goes with it. If the gospel you've been sitting under for years has in all honesty produced a church of self-righteous believers who love to label people, to type them according to their level of obedience to God's commands, then somewhere along the road you have been robbed of the power of the gospel. For the power of the gospel is that it reveals the righteousness of God to be the gift of God. And that very revelation that Christ has become for us our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption, that sets us free from the power of sin and death. For that came through the lie that we could be like God by ourselves. God never had a plan to save the world through our obedience. His plan was to save the world through his love. Now, 
Let me finish by using a couple of illustrations that may help you to understand what I mean when I say that God always purposed for our lives to be rooted in the obedience of God rather than our obedience to God. Because if you don't see this, you'll be left thinking that I'm saying that obedience to God is unimportant. I'm not saying that. I mean, my obedience is important because my obedience to the call to get up every morning and work hard and make sacrifices to serve my family with the best life I can give them, that's not unimportant. It's very important. But that obedience is not birthed from a desire to get closer to my family or to get something from them. It's birthed and grows purely out of my love for my family. The obedience of God in our lives is the work of His Spirit, His nature, His love in our hearts, from which obedience is birthed. Obedience is only pleasing to God if His love is the root, the source of that obedience. Let me put that another way. Obedience is only pleasing to God if He is the Father of that obedience. Now here's the first illustration. You're going to need your imagination and please also forgive me if you've heard this before because I've used it many times. Imagine a young pastor in Africa who's married his sweetheart and he and his wife were very happy but as the years went by it became apparent that they couldn't seem to have any children. I mean they took medical advice, they prayed, they got the church to pray but months turned into years and there was no children. Their constant prayer was Lord we don't want to remain barren. We just want to bear fruit. Eventually, the pastor's wife became very depressed. And one spring, he had to leave to travel deep into the bush for an evangelistic campaign that would keep him away for eight weeks. And there was no mobile phone reception. So for eight weeks, he didn't know what was happening at home. And when he finally returned home, his wife ran to greet him with the happy news that she was expecting their first child. I mean, he had never seen her so happy. She proudly shared with him how she'd been to the doctors that very week and a scan had confirmed that she was now six weeks pregnant. And the pastor said, hang on a minute. How can you be six weeks pregnant if I've been away for eight weeks? And his wife replied, well, that's a small matter. What does that matter compared to the fact that I have a child? I mean, the goal was that I bear a child, right? Wrong, said her husband. The goal was that we bear our child. You see, any ministry that puts obedience before love will be content with an obedience fathered by guilt or shame or fear. Such fathers never produce the obedience that the love of God conceives in us, the love of a parent for their children. You know, that rejection, that fear of the rejection of God can never birth the character of Christ. Let me give you the second illustration. Imagine one day, you find yourself in a crowd of people um, and you're going to have to use your imagination for that at the moment, aren't you? So imagine you're in a crowd and suddenly the attention of the crowd is on a gang of men who have set upon a young man in broad daylight and they're beating him with baseball bats as he lies on the ground. And these men are so angry and violent that the whole crowd draws back in fear. Now, what should you do as a Christian? Well, what would you do? I mean, if we were honest, to be honest, I'd hesitate. I mean, in that moment of hesitation, we would know the command of God to love others and to lay down your life for them. And so I guess we'd begin to try and engage your will, try and motivate yourself to do what a Christian should do. After all, that's what a Christian is, isn't it? Somebody who obeys God's commands, right? Wrong. Let me show you who God calls us and equips us by His Spirit to be, something much greater than simply somebody who tries to obey commands. 
Imagine those few seconds while you or I hesitate and try and muster up the courage to do something about the man being beaten up. Suddenly, we see an older woman from the crowd and she's running towards the gang and she's throwing herself over the young man to shield him from the blows. She's even taking the blows herself. You see, while you and I hesitated because we were relying on obedience, this woman did not hesitate because she had something much more powerful coursing through every fiber of her being the love of a mother for her son. You know, Jesus spoke so much about the heart of the Father, but as he drew nearer Jerusalem, as he approached the time to lay his body over ours and take the blows of sin and death that were meant for us, suddenly in Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus begins to describe the love he feels in his heart as most like that of a mother toward her children. He looks down in Jerusalem and he begins to cry over her, saying, how often I've wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. You see, a mother isn't content until she's able to wrap herself around her children. Last week I said, we don't have a savior who stands on the bank of the river and shouts at us to repent from drowning, but rather one who unites his body to ours, who comes between us and what is killing us. He didn't save us through our obedience and he doesn't give to us according to our obedience, but according to his grace and mercy. You see, his giving is not the problem, it's our receiving. God's way of bringing forth his life in us is not to rely on our obedience to commands, but to fill us with his love, a love that sees the stranger as you would your own child. It is only the Holy Spirit that pours this love into our hearts, and this love, the love of the Father, conceives and brings forth the obedience of God in our lives because he never had a plan to save the world through our obedience. His plan was always to save the world through his love. Obedience is only pleasing to God if he, love, is the father of that obedience. Love is a better father of obedience than fear or guilt or shame because love always does the right thing. Now we've been talking about obedience which we could define as doing the right thing. And we all want to be found obedient to the call of God and the Spirit of God in our lives. We all want to do the right thing. But what I've shared this morning is that God never saw you as having to rely on your willpower to be obedient. Your willpower alone, that is. He always saw obedience as the child his love conceived in us. For love always does the right thing. That's why a young woman, you know, who's about to become a mother for the first time, she may have genuine fears about whether she's capable of doing the right thing, of being a good mother. She may worry a lot about doing something that may harm her child. She thinks that other people would make a much better mother than her. But from the moment that baby is put in her arms, she is filled with so much love for that child that she handles that child and cares for that child with a tenderness, a dedication, a selflessness that no one in the world can match because no one loves you like your mother. Now, the love she has for her child, it informs and directs everything she does, even to the laying down of her own life for that child. And all the commands in the world to be a good mother can't do what the love in her heart could do. Against such love, there is no command. Now, there have been incidents down the years where something or someone looks like they were going to harm one of our children. And I've often thought of my wife, Nicola, who is one of the gentlest, meekest people I know, and yet in times like that, suddenly she's risen up like a lion and she stepped in between her child and the threat. She steps up and says, in effect, you're going to have to go through me to get to them. 
No wonder Jesus, on the way to the cross, described himself as like a mother who wants to gather her children under her wings because Christ on the cross is God declaring to sin and death, you're going to have to go through me to get to them. Christ on the cross is God declaring to sin and death for you, you're going to have to go through me to get to them. And here's the good news of the gospel. They could not get through him. When darkness met light, light won. When union met separation, union won. When sin and death met Christ on that cross, the communion of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the union of the Trinity was stronger than the separation of sin and death. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was the appearing of that victory, this new life where now we have this communion, where we can live in the communion of the Father, Son, and Spirit, what the New Testament calls life in Christ. The Lord is not asking you to clean your life up to a certain standard through your obedience before he will commit himself to you, for he never expected that you could clean your life of darkness. That's the job of the light, the love of God, the nature of God, his very spirit, his presence in your life, who transforms your life by dealing with the unbelief, the false picture of the Father, the darkness of the root of your life, by persuading us that we are indeed God's children. That's Romans 8 verse 16. That's a work of the Spirit because God never had a plan to save the world through our obedience, but to save the world through his love. Obedience is only pleasing to God if he is the father of that obedience. And love is a better father of obedience than fear or guilt or shame because love always does the right thing. I wanna finish by praying a prayer and inviting you to pray it with me. And it's not a prayer promising God that you will be obedient. It's one simply asking him to fill you with his spirit, his love, so that his love in you will cause you to do all the right things, all the things that your willpower alone has failed to do, even when you've wanted to do them, all the things you know you should do, but could never find the power, could never find the love in your heart to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to believe in you, but I do not know you. I now see that the picture I have carried of you in my heart does not look like Jesus. I ask you to come by your Holy Spirit and reveal to me that Christ and him crucified was you laying your body over mine, covering me with your life, putting yourself between me and sin and death. I don't want to live anymore looking to this world to tell me who I am. I want to see who I am to you. What's my worth to you? Open my eyes that I may say Jesus as your true view and opinion of my worth. Open my heart that I may know a love that sets me free from guilt and shame and fear. I no longer want any of them to be the father of my life. Today, I receive you as the father of my life and I will live as the most precious person in the world to you. Let the party in heaven over me begin today and let me hear the sound of it every day in my spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name, the name you have given me. Amen.